Muslims believe that uh, Sharia, as we understand it, as the, its objectives and its laws, uh, really are fully in sync with American values. Welcome to Candid Insights. I'm your host, Sahil Badruddin, and today we have with us Daisy Khan, Executive Director of the Women's Islamic Initiative for Spirituality and Equality, and previously listed among Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. Daisy, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much, Sahil, for having me with you. To start, you've done extensive work on Sharia, which is often loosely defined as Islamic law, and how Sharia has been misunderstood in the social, legal, and political context of America. Could you help us understand the background and the current state of the situation? Yeah, there is so much confusion about Sharia, and you know, partly because most Americans are unfamiliar with Islam, let alone you know, the, the sources of Islamic law. But Sharia is often referred to in the West or misunderstood as strictly a legal code that sometimes stands in direct opposition to U.S. laws and therefore is compatible with American values and even human rights. And it is often connected to extreme punishments, such as the ones that we see on television, such as a stoning of a person or cutting off of hands or enforced you know, punishments in certain countries. And sometimes uh, specific violent practices that we have seen in Afghanistan against, uh, you know, done by the Taliban against women, such as honor killings, and in some cases, female genital mutilation. So all of this is in, uh, in the minds of Americans, evidence of violence and gender bias, which they believe is inherent in Islam, because it comes out of uh, a source of Islamic law. But that's, you know, that is not what Sharia really is. Uh, Muslims, you know, uh, it's interchangeably used as Islamic law, but the literal meaning of Sharia is the way to the watering hole, and it's derived from the word uh, ordinances, shar, uh, which means God's commandments and his legislations. So, and Muslim scholars um, had to come up with a legal system as they were, you know, ruling over the last 1400 years, and they unanimously agreed that the uh, Islamic law has to help realize the best interest of human beings. And so they culled all the various commandments in our scriptures, which is the Quran and the prophetic sayings, and they came up with six fundamental objectives that Sharia has to um, has has to you know provide for all human beings, and these six rights uh, were determined as right to life, which includes you know the right to food, shelter, clothing, healthcare, and personal security. Right to religion, which means free exercise of religion of one's choice, and uh, prohibition of religious discrimination. Right to mind, which includes the right to education to pursue one's talent. Um, to, you know, um, uh, to, you know, right to education, uh, right to property, which includes the right to own property and pursue wealth and economic security, right to family, which includes the right to marriage, marry anybody, have children, have a family life. And then finally, right to dignity, 
includes the right to free, um, right to be free of oppression and discrimination, and uh, to be uh, to not to be enslaved or treated poorly or cruelly. And these are the six rights on which all the laws hang. And these rights are not only for Muslims, these rights are also granted to all human beings. So it's a very different picture, and it's similar to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness in the United States. Uh, and when you look at these six rights, you basically you know, realize that it's really not that different than the Bill of Rights that we have here in the United States, which grants all human beings these six rights. So this right. is why Muslims believe that uh, Sharia, as we understand it, as the, its objectives and its laws uh, really are fully in sync with American values. Now, when you talk about the punishments, those are no different than, let's say, in America, when you have capital punishment in one state and another state, you don't. So in the same things, uh, in some countries, people use very harsh punishments, the harshest form of punishment, and some that choose to go with a very lenient punishment. So you can have somebody's hand cut off for theft, or you can have them be freed and, you know, to be forgiven. Um, you can have capital punishment for somebody in the form of beheading, or you can have life imprisonment, or you can have, or you can give, you know, monetary dispensation to the family. All these, all these varieties of punishments exist all over the world. But unfortunately, what Americans see here are some of the harshest punishment, and then they think this is what all of Sharia is, and that's just not true. Yeah. So there's a bit of broad brushing that's happening. Yeah. Within. So what can we do for people in positions of power, whether they be legal, political, to help them understand, better understand Islam in general? Uh, the most important thing um, that is missing uh, from the discourse on Islam and, uh, you know, Muslims and Islam in America is that uh, the public opinion in America regarding Islam has been shaped largely by the events of 9-11 and prior to that, the Iranian revolution. And it's a lot of negative images associated with that. You know, 9-11 was a traumatic event, um, you know, horrific event, and uh, it some, somehow attributed to the religion of Islam because the perpetrators who did it called themselves Muslim. So, um, and that is what has been reported in the press and uh, whatever gets reported in the press shapes public opinion. And so the public opinion, and that includes the politicians who also consume that same media, their opinion regarding Islam and Muslim also gets shaped accordingly. So what happens is they begin to see Muslims through a national security lens rather than just citizens of this country and uh, who are law-abiding, contributing members of the society they regard Muslims as a national security threat. And so certain kinds of policies get put into place to keep this community at bay. But what needs to happen is there needs to be mass education. Uh, we need to really fill this knowledge gap of what uh, Islam really is, how it's practiced, what its beliefs are, and distinguish it from those people who weaponize religion uh, to further their aims, their political aims, and, and delink the religion of Islam from terrorism once and for all. And that requires educating not only the general public, but also uh, the, the politicians who shape 
you know, who are the lawmakers who shape policies and put policies like the Muslim ban into place and prevent the refugees from coming in and all sorts of, you know, uh, policies that have been put in place since 9-11. So this is the job of Muslims, uh, where we have to make sure that we provide the right kind of educational awareness. Um, So I'm on a on a mission to disseminate a book called Wise Up to members of Congress, to governors, mayors, uh, all the you know influential people in this country, uh, public defenders, uh, attorney generals, and those are the people that need to have this book in their hand so that they know, uh, you know, they have an authoritative source where they can go and reference and and determine what is the truth. And uh, so we need to make it easy for them to access information, which is not available right now. People have to go online. They have to do searches. Their staff have to do searches. And we have to just make it easy and feed them the information that they need. The Wise Up report was produced with the help of 72 academics, scholars, imams, and activists. And you mentioned it took over two years. And it's it's this evidence-based report that clarifies differences between Islamic theology and extremist theology and the best practices from preventing, you know, recruitment and hate crimes against Muslims. There are about 100 mosques and 50 interfaith centers which have already signed up for the report. What are your future hopes for it? Well, so the future hope is, you know, whatever we've done in small measure, we've seen the impact of it because people are really excited, especially our lawmakers. Uh, They're like, wow, it took you guys so long to do this. What took so long? You know, this should have been in our hands years ago because it's so easy to to find information in it Um, that now we need to nationalize it. We need to nationalize this effort and get this disseminated as quickly as we can. Um, the hard copies, but then we need to create a soft copy, which is an ebook, which can then be disseminated through our allies. We have so many wonderful people that have stepped up to the plate and have defended Muslims and have defended our rights, whether they went to the airports or whether they are the first ones that circle the wagons around Muslims. They need to have a tool in their hand as well, because they're always being accused of, you know, um, of, of uh, they, they need ammunition in their own arsenal when they are being questioned by people um, that you know disagree with them. So, so the plan is to not only disseminate this widely through our networks of allies, but also to then do a social media campaign that targets opposition groups directly, so that we can actually tell the stories of what the content that's in this book, tell, tell it in a story form so it reaches people that are that are in the middle, the silent majority that is confused, that doesn't know how to think about things. You know, in America right now, the nation is so polarized and the discourse is really being shaped by, you know, people on the right and people on the left. So, and there's an entire silent majority that is confused, that doesn't know how to think about things. And that is the uh, that is the audience that we have to reach, and we have to reach them through the platforms, the various platforms that they access. So our plan is to you know go into these um, various platforms and target audiences uh, like you know women's groups. Women's groups are ideal audiences for us. They're they're concerned about the future of their children. Uh, they want to be educated. They're in PTA. They're in schools. Uh, they're in soccer fields. And, and law enforcement are there to protect us, and they need to know this information. So we have a whole plan of how to do target you know, marketing to these audiences, 
and uh, it's my it's my goal that this book should be readily available to everyone here in the United States, and then the plan too is to globalize it and do translations of it and to disseminate it. Because you know, just because we defeated ISIS and just because uh, we think we defeat one little thing doesn't mean that the ideology is gone. I mean, of just course. today there are reports coming out of Germany where you had a plan. You know, all right people had a plan to go into mosques and create mayhem and kill thousands of people. And they, uh, fortunately, they were caught. But what if they hadn't been caught? So not only do we need to do this with, uh, we need to also educate the general public about the rise of extremism in general. And it exists. Yes, it was ISIS extremism, but it was also, there's also alt-right extremism that's growing and mushrooming very rapidly all over the West. And they are a threat to all of us. They're not just a threat to Muslims because they have guns, they have weapons, and they are local in our communities. So we have to wrap our heads around all this and work together as allies to come together to create a more peaceful and harmonious environment. Speaking of polarization and extremism, what do you think are some of the root causes? Of course, I think we can generalize completely, but are there common causes of it today? Well, I think that um, there it seems to be a very severe reaction uh, to rapid change that is happening in the world with globalization and with what seems to be like, you know, a flow of people like, you know, with the refugees and influx of people coming on, on, on the shores of people that don't know how to adapt and don't, are not equipped to handle the proper integration of that. That certainly seems to be the problem in Europe, but every society has a, a unique challenge. Like in the United States, we've always been multicultural. We've always been a nation of immigrants. So accepting immigrants, integrating them, adapting them to our way of life is just the story of America. And it's a very successful story. So that's not our challenge here, but that's the challenge in Europe where monocultures are going very multicultural very quickly and very rapidly. And it's creating that, that, that rift where they're not, they don't have the proper interlocutors to help aid the two sides to navigate the, 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 the newcomers with, with, the, with the people that are, you know, um, um, people of the land. Uh, but in my opinion, that's not the full story. Uh, it seems as though there is a rise in extremist thought, extremist thinking, an extreme way of, you know, uh, of, of reshaping societies. And that seems to be going on everywhere where there is a us versus them narrative that has been created in the minds of the majority populations, that somehow the majority population is under threat and their identity is under threat. And so they have to then, you know, and it's being done by the people who are the minorities. And so there is a fight between the, you know, the, the majority versus the minority and the minority has to be crushed and oppressed and even pushed out. And that seems to be at play in many countries where you're seeing this, um, this, this rise of extremism, you know, um, peppered with enough enough religious fervor where it's mobilizing large large groups of people uh and it's it's you know combined with nationalism and xenophobia it's extremely threatening to the world and i'm really worried about it because uh you know its aim is to reshape societies and to 
push people out. And so, you know, we could have mass migrations all, all over. And uh, so this is what's at play. And, you know, when you say, what do they have in common, us versus them, whether it's ISIS or it's alt-right or whether it's Hindutva or it's uh, uh, the Buddhist, uh, you know, in Rohingya, they all seem to have the, the same things in common, which is, you know, their foundation is us versus them. We are the in-group. Everybody else is the out-group. We have to maintain purity because we were the pure ones and somehow we got adulterated by the others. Um, you know, we uh, they have a pessimism about the state of the world, that somehow their world is not where it needs to be. And uh, so they have to act upon that. Um, they rewrite history. They rewrite history. They'll ignore what happened in the last thousand years and just rewrite history to to tell it from their own narrative. Um, they have an apocalyptic narrative, like somehow this world is about to come to an end and they have to aid that and they have to, you know, be part of God's party, like, you know, on the front lines. Uh, and then they also use, um, you know, a, a neo-interpretation of scripture um, where they use symbols and they use myths and uh, concepts uh, borrowed from religion to mobilize larger groups of people. This is what they all have in common. And the way they go about it uh, and how they uh, disseminate this information also has commonalities because many of them are not relying on just grassroots. They're actually relying on social media. And social media has aided, abetted, allowed people to disseminate vast amount of information very quickly and very rapidly across all the platforms. Some revolutions are literally run by WhatsApp because, you know, because they are just groups of people where you can share information. And not only information, this is not always right information. This is also sometimes false information and fake information and rumors are spreading. And so, so, you know, we have to really work on many fronts uh, to confront to confront this issue. Any particular solutions come in mind? I think that for me, the best solution is one that is transforms people uh, permanently. That is more a systemic change um, because, you know, guns and bullets and drones and <laughs> they only defeat people for a little while. They might take out people that are on the front lines, but the ideology and the thinking is manifesting and captivating many people. Uh, and, and it's personal angst. A lot of people have personal angst, whatever their personal issues are, you know, the other side is willing to offer a solution. So deep systemic change that requires bottom up and top down approach. In other words, you know, um, people in power have to work with people who are at the street level. And together we have to re-educate people, inform people, uh, reach out to people, transform people. And, um, and uh, you know, it requires providing content out there. Uh, unless you have content out there, you know, unless you have knowledge, you don't have the narrative. And so you also have to shape the narrative. You have to tell your side of the story in order for, for you know, the other side to be confronted. And, um, so it has to happen on many levels and many layers, but it has to be systemic. It has to be deep. It might be a decade-long project, but many stakeholders have to come together to work on this together. 
I want to switch gears a little bit. After finding yourself at the center of a national debate surrounding the Ground Zero controversy with Imam Faisal Abdul Rauf, you became the executive director of the American Society for Muslim Advancement, where I believe you spent 18 years creating creating intra and interfaith programs based on cultural and religious harmony and interfaith collaboration. So here I want to talk about collaboration and specifically about intra-Muslim, Muslim-to-Muslim relationships. In these times of polarization and extremism, how can Muslims better support each other? Uh, You know, uh, you mentioned that I was uh, with the American Society for Muslim Advancement. In fact, I had founded it in 1997, so it was uh, prior to to the Ground Zero controversy. I was already executive director. But during that time, I realized that uh, in order to really uh, tried to find the root cause of all the problems, we really needed to create certain structures within our community uh, where the structures were so sound and uh, had had a deep foundation that whatever solutions we come up with, we have to do it collectively. So one of the gaps I saw in in our work, in the Muslim community's work, was that although we you know, love this term called the Ummah, the nation, uh, the worldwide Muslim community, Uh, we actually don't operate that way. We operate in silos, we uh, decentralize, uh, other than some Shia communities that have central authority. The Sunni community, the majority Muslim community does not have central authority. And the lack of that central authority is allowing people like engineers like Osama bin Laden to speak for all Muslims. And so I um, um, decided that I was going to cultivate uh, the young, the new younger generation of Muslims and bring them together. And so I created a platform called Muslim Leaders of Tomorrow. Uh, and I called them from all the different uh, schools of thought, from, uh, you know, everything from Sufi, Shia, Sunni, Ismaili, Ahmadiyya, mm-hmm. Uh, you name it, the whole spectrum of the Muslim community, the racial spectrum, the national spectrum. And we created a platform here in New York um, to bring about a hundred of them together to find out what is it that we had in common, what were some of the challenges, what they hoped for, what were the obstacles they were overcome, trying to overcome. And the biggest obstacle was that there was intolerance within the community itself. And some people who were Sunni were making claims about Shia, you know, and the Shia were upset. And so so there wasn't even uh, a collective vision for the Muslims on how wow. to move forward because they thought so differently about one another and undermined one another and disregarded one another. And, and so we had to start with that. And that was in 2004. And the very first conference that we did, we decided that we were not going to do that anymore, that collectively, as a community, we had to come together and honor one another and respect one another. And that led us to create uh, a a regional, Western-wide Muslim Leaders of Tomorrow program, where we brought people together from different nations, you know, the French and the Americans and the Europeans and brought them together. And then eventually we had a very big global meet where 300 leaders came together. Today, many of these people who who met one another and networked with one another are, are, are leaders right now. 
and but they also are connected to one another. They have regard for one another. They have shared their stories with one another. They have aspirations, collective aspirations. And it is my dream that one day that perhaps maybe such a platform would guide our communities going forward. Uh, individually, they're doing that, but we also need to do this collectively. And so once, you know, it was also my way of not just strengthening the next generation, but it was also my way of showing that there was parity between men and women in the community. Because many of the women who were leading efforts were not necessarily known to the men. And so when we put them in the room together and it was complete 50-50, that there was this recognition that women were also leading change in the community and they were truly also at the forefront. So that also created gender parity within this group. And so that was that was our one of our other aims. And similarly, you know, when the issue of Muslim women came up, I created a similar platform once again to bring Muslim women from all different spectrums together to collectively shape our destiny and to discover what were some of the challenges that we were confronted as Muslim women, what do we need to do? So some of these social issues, and I talk about systemic change, some of these social issues have to be done collectively with the input of the various stakeholders. Only then can we create the solutions that work for everybody. Mm, I I hear what you're saying. And then what came out of the work of the Cordoba Initiative since the Ground Zero controversy till now? Well, unfortunately, the project that we had dreamed about and had proposed, which was, you know, a very large um, community center, Mm -hmm. which would have at its heart interfaith was its uh, major, major thrust because we had had so many relations with the interfaith community. uh, That's why it was called the Cordoba House. Um, and it was going to be a robust community center like the JCCs and the YMCA's equivalent of that. But unfortunately, because of the um, attacks on the center and it, the project was premature, we hadn't done the right kind of fundraising that we needed to do. So the project never really got built. Uh, and in place of it right now, I believe in the next year or so, there's going to be a smaller community center with some, you know, a development project, which ultimately wound up becoming a a condo development, but there will be a small community center and I believe a museum slash community center built there. And then about WISE, the Women's Islamic Initiative for Spirituality and Equality, WISE initiated the creation of the first global women's shura or advisory council, which advances women's rights through spiritual interpretation. Could you speak a little bit about the council and its work? Yeah, so in uh, at one of our first conferences that we held as Muslim women, as I was mentioning before, when Muslim women from all different nations came together, from all walks of life, Shia, Sunni, everyone, uh, Black, White, <laughs> Middle Eastern, Asian, and we posed a couple of questions. And one of the questions we asked was, what is the biggest barrier to Muslim women's advancement? And we listed you know, resources, education, and I had put in another question in there, which was distorted scriptural interpretation. And that is what got the highest mark. You know, 87 people, 7% of people said that is the biggest barrier. And then we asked people, should Muslim women be 
uh, involved in interpreting the old text and like 91% of the women said yes. So that gave us the permission to form our own council and the Shura Council was formed in 2008. It was actually the first Shura Council of Muslim women in the globe. Uh, none had existed before that. And since then, many other Shura Councils have sprung up, which I'm really happy about. Uh, but the Shura Council was all voluntary, about 40 women uh, from different countries coming together to address the issues that affected Muslim women the most. Uh, everything from honor killings, female genital mutilation, domestic violence, um, lack of education, rape sickness, you name it, the list was about 10 issues. And so it took us it took us three months, uh, six months to work on one position paper, uh, which would be, you know, well-researched position paper on Muslim women's issues and grounded in scripture. So uh, so we were trying to once again do an evidence based uh, position paper that would be so compelling that if we needed to argue our point, that it would not be that hard for us to do. And so uh, we issued a paper called Jihad Against Violence because the women said that the biggest problem facing Muslim women right now is terrorism because it's affecting everything. It's affecting society. It's affecting community. It's affecting children's ability to go to school. And so it was a societal issue. And uh, combine it with domestic violence because that was another thing that was, that was uh, affecting families and communities. And uh, then we would turn this paper over to our networks of women around the at the at the local level and we paired up with uh, Jamila Afghani in Afghanistan and she started doing trainings of imams uh, sitting down discussing the research paper that we had done on issues of education child marriage and we saw that the knowledge <laughs> was like it was so freeing for the imams because when they actually saw evidence coming from the Quran supporting what they should have, you know, the violations against women should have never been justified, that freed them and that really helped them to promote um, a proper understanding of, you know, women's right to inheritance, their right to mobility, their right to education, their right to not be forcibly married. And so <clears throat> to date we have through Jamila's work, trained about 6,000 imams in Afghanistan. And this work of the Shura Council is now being pulled together into one full document on Know Your Rights for Muslim Women, which is then going to be used in Afghanistan because we are making a peace deal right now with Taliban. As you know, after all these years and billions of dollars spent, Taliban is still coming back to power. And they don't have a regard for women they they don't know much about women they don't know much about women's rights so we hope that the document that we are preparing will be used to train large groups of people very quickly around the country and uh it is you know taliban has said that we will give women their rights provided they are you know found in islam so this is the work we've been doing all this time and so we're lucky that we are ready and poised to make a difference and so, so we're working on it very quickly so we can get this document ready uh, for uh, use in, in Afghanistan. That's really good to hear. Speaking about your personal journey, in your memoir, Born with Wings, you describe your journey of self-actualization and your success 
in opening doors for other Muslim women and building bridges between cultures. What opportunities do you think women have to make a difference? Uh, well, you know, this is a very important question for the United States because we are in a pivotal moment in history when standing up for ourselves has never been more timely. And women's activism has taken on a whole new significance. And uh, through my book, I wanted people to know what woman can, what one woman can do. It's my story. It's my journey. And when you are placed in a situation where you need to act, um, you have to decide if you're going to sit and observe or you're going to participate and make a difference. And then in addition to that, when you connect with other women who are doing that, you connect with a movement, you don't feel that you're alone, that there is a sisterhood out there. And I'm speaking for myself because as a Muslim woman, I see other faith-based movements, whether they're Jewish or Christian, and I see women at the forefront in my within the circles of my activism <clears throat> and how hard they are working. And I realized that you know, some of the things that I mention in the book about my stories and working with other women, it's really important to show up and to show up and to get involved. And, uh, and this not only helps you to get to know yourself, but it also shows you that you have a power within you, which, you know, can enable you yourself, but also help so many other people, um, along 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 your journey and that is very um, empowering to people and uh, you know and and helpful to society uh, that that really needs the women's engagement right now I see and then I want to ask you a little bit about speaking of your personal journey I know you grew up in Kashmir what do you make of the past and current political situation there well, I, you know, I grew up in a Kashmir that was a very different place. Um, grew up in a fairly progressive Muslim household in the shadows of beautiful Himalayan mountains. I went to Catholic school. You know, I had, I had, I mean, my colleagues were Christian. Our nuns were Christian. You know, we had Hindu professors, Sikh girls. We bought freshwater pearls from Buddhists. It, I had intersected with every great world religion, and uh, and it was the pluralism of world religions that enhanced and uh, and uh, empowered me to take on the work that I'm doing tonight today in the United States because it was part of my upbringing. It was it was it came naturally to me, and that is what I thought was the norm. And that is what I was building up my work here in the United States on. And now I see a complete regression of that. And I see a reversal of that. And it's heartbreaking because what was an exemplar for so many other people, you know, this great nation where you have so many cultures and religions coexisting in some kind of a chaotic way, but still everybody was defining themselves, defining their path defining their religion, expressing their religion. It was very colorful, chaotic, fun. Um, and that seems to be a reversal of now we are going to be just one major religion, a place for one religion, and every other religion is going to get relegated. That, I don't know how long that'll last. I think it's somebody's wishful thinking. 
I don't think that it is, it, it's a foundation of that nation. Uh, and um, so it, it, it's, a, it's a tragic reversal because a lot of people are going to get hurt in the process. It's, yeah, it's sad to hear. So speaking about all the different issues we spoke about, I think we need to think about a vision for the future. And sometimes we end up talking about these in general terms, but could you name a specific objective perhaps you see the world can achieve, let's say in 25 years? And what insights and suggestions would you offer that might help achieve this vision? Well, uh, for me, it all started with when I was delving deeper into myself because I, you know, in my own spiritual journey at one point, I was a broken person in the sense that I felt fragmented. I felt that my identity was not whole. I didn't know who I was because of, you know, the effects of 9-11, the effects of the Iranian revolution, the effects of external issues that were confronting me that were fragmenting me from within. And it's only when I delved deeper into myself, things began to touch me. I noticed things. I I learned to access my inner power and uh, eventually people started coming to me for advice. These questions eventually became a dialogue and that dialogue eventually became a mission. And But all of these things start with, with just yourself. And that is what my hope is that within the next 25 years that we will see more higher consciousness, people tapping into their own consciousness uh, where many people that I speak to, whether it's young people, older people are all feeling this uh, uncertainty right now. You know, they're encountering many roadblocks. People are fearful. Uh, They are lacking confidence about the future. They're lacking confidence that we don't even know if we're going to have a planet and people feel stuck. And so this, this is the perfect time to take a pause because this can happen at a personal level and it can also happen at a societal level. But if every person delves deep inside of them and tap into a new model, which is refreshing, which has a simplified outlook on how to understand life and tap into that spiritual consciousness that exists in all of our faith traditions, that we can find an easy way to make sense of who we are, what we were created for, and build a life plan around that, uh, that is guided by a higher power where we are evolving and not getting lost along the way. And then only then once we feel that we are empowered and guided, then we can empower others to lead a more fulfilled life. And then societies itself will get reshaped because if everybody is doing this in their own capacity, they're influencing the person on their right and the person on their left and their families and communities. It's literally like a ripple in the pond. You have to start with the middle and it extends out very quickly. I uh, I think that, you know, <clears throat> you have to see the dark days in order to then experience the lightness. And I think we are going through the dark days as a society, as individuals as well. And But if we just do some simple work within ourselves and we tap into our inner, will we be able to come out whole? I do believe that this will happen because I speak to a lot of people that are searching and they're searching for this meaning. And so all we have to do is create smaller circles around us 
and start having these conversations within our own circle so we can empower ourselves and protect ourselves and support one another in this journey. And finally, if if I may ask, what would be what would be a question, even a faith related question that you are still searching for a satisfying answer to and for which you would even welcome other perspectives? You know, I've been asking God this question almost every day. (laughs) (laughs) When there are so many good people you have put on this earth, when there are so many right, when there's such righteousness and such loyalty and forgiveness, and why does it feel as if evil has the upper hand? Just explain this little thing to me. And I haven't gotten my answer yet, but it feels as if, as if the evil, whatever that we call it, that negative energy has the upper hand right now. But I also see that there is so much goodness, but that goodness is not able to be seen. It's all under the surface. It's there. It exists. And as I, I just wish that God would just make a little bit more wiggle room for, for those of us who are trying to do good in this world so that people who are despairing understand that it's not all bleak, that we're here, we're helping one another, and, uh, and that ultimately the good will triumph over the bad. Daisy, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Candid Insights. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media for updates on future episodes. If you've already subscribed, please leave us a rating or review. It does help new people find the podcast. I'm Sahil Badruddin, your host. And for a transcript of this interview and others, visit my website at sahilbadruddin.com.